welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 32. In this episode, I speak with Jana Edding about how to identify developmental language disorder within the context of a child's dialect with an eye towards clinical and educational implications. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and we discussed a lot of great resources in this episode, and you can also find more information about our guests on the website. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 32. Today I have Jana Edding, and I'll start by having you introduce yourself, Jana. Hi, Tiffany. Thanks for having me on. My name is Jana Edding. I'm a professor at Sciences and Disorders at Louisiana State University, and I'm the director of the D4 Child Language Lab. And the four Ds stand for Child Language Development, Disorders, dialects and disparities. And the disparities we're hoping to reduce are in health and education. I'm also a wife and a mother of two college-age students um, who are really helping me become a better college professor. Um, definitely better in the classroom. They have been critiquing uh, my materials since March. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> oh, and I'm a new grandmother to a, a puppy. Uh, Bayou Shep, that my son just, just, uh, he's now a proud owner. Wow. So yeah, I have to, I have to add that to my identity. Oh my goodness. Now, is this puppy potty trained? That's the big question. Um, well, I went to actually help him. He just, he just graduated and started a new job. So I went and he had one accident on my watch, none on my son's, but you know, I had him during the hard hours. <laughs> That's the hardest thing is when they're puppies and <laughs> house trained. You're like, okay, this is, I'm currently uh, potty training my three-year-old and um, <laughs> fun to do. I mean, at first when it was pandemic, I thought this is a great time to potty train him. And let's see how long we've been in the pandemic now. And he's not really down with it. So yeah, <laughs> well, good luck. human or yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of happy that the grandmother really, you get to leave. Um, and so I was kind of happy after the five days. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I'm missing my amazing daycare providers so much, but especially so with the potty training help, because yeah. they're like the potty training experts. And now I'm, even though he's my third, I'm like, I don't, how did I do this before? Oh yeah, I didn't do it all before. So they did it. Yeah. Oh goodness. It's crazy. Uh, well, good um, luck. I made time and amongst all those duties uh, to come on here. And I'll just get started by jumping in with my first question. So you have a framework in which you are um, thinking about language disorders within a model of difference. And I was wanting you to tell us about how this is different than the model of dialect versus disorder that we hear about often in the literature and in the ASHA media Report. Yeah, definitely in the 1980s and since then, um, uh, the American Speech Language Hearing Association has really advocated for a uh, dialect versus difference phrase. And it's a, 
the, the intent is wonderful. It's to help clinicians um, understand that disorders and dialects are not the same thing and to help us not misidentify a child who's typically developing but speaks a dialect that's different than general American English as an impairment. Um, and so we tried to use this 30 years ago when I came to Louisiana, I tried it. And the first thing that happened is I had to throw away all these beautiful pieces of language, in particular the verb phrase, because so much of it shows variation across dialects. Um, the other thing about it that was hard for me is it just went against my training at the University of Kansas in the child language program. In the 90s when I was training, um, Larry Leonard was doing cross-linguistic studies of DLD. He was studying child language impairment in not only English, but I um, can't even remember his language. He studied so many languages, Italian, mm -hmm. Spanish, Dutch. And Mabel Rice, my mentor, was starting to do the same thing um, in Canada with French. And so I grew up in a PhD program that was about how do children learn language? How does DLD manifest in a language, and it wasn't English. It was called human language. Um, and so quickly, I abandoned the dialect versus disorder phrase to move it to be something that was much more cross-linguistic to be, okay, how does DLD manifest in different uh, dialects of English that I am hearing in Louisiana? It's no different than the speech pathologist who says, how does DLD manifest in two-year-olds? How does it manifest in six-year-olds? How does it manifest in a 10-year-old? It's that same speech pathology question, um, which I'm very comfortable with because we're experts of disorders and our job is to figure out how that disorder uh, manifests and then how to treat that disorder. Um, but um, I mean, do you, do, you, do you want any more on that topic? Yeah, I was thinking maybe what we could do is think about how you, the specific different dialects you've studied, because I know there are many, but you in particular have really thought, uh, researched a bit about African-American English and Southern white English. Maybe you could describe those dialects and describe how your labs approach, you know, categorizing di dialects in relation to general American English. And is that the case? Do you do it in relation to general American English? Um, so, so dialects are, I might be going a little backwards for you, but dialects are products of healthy, typical development. It's because humans are creative beings and humans that live together, identify with each other and share cultural norms, sound and use language in a similar way. So all languages have dialects, all countries um, have dialects, all states have dialects. Um, disorders are, um, reflect a less efficient system, an atypical system, um, and we think it's tied to neurobiology, even though we don't quite understand it, and we think it has a genetic component, even though we don't quite understand that genetic component. There's enough evidence to say there's something neurobiological and there's something genetic. Um, DLD is uh, a low incidence, so estimates can be somewhere between 7 and 12 percent. We might go up to 15 percent in low-income communities. Um, there's a real big difference um, between disorder versus uh, dialect. So when you use the phrase dialect versus disorder, you oftentimes hear speech pathologists explain it as, well, if everyone in the classroom does it, it's a dialect difference. 
if only a small group of children do it and they're your weak learners, then that's the disorder. And so those are the kids. We're gonna look for things that the kids do that the other kids don't do. That's difficult because across languages, children with DLD do everything the typical kid does. They just do it less efficiently. And if they make something that's a dialect inappropriate error, they just do it maybe at a, a, for a longer period. So they do it at a slightly older age um, and they might do it more frequently. But there is nothing that a DLD child does or a child with DLD does that a typically developing child or especially a younger typically developing child doesn't do. And so the disorder within dialect approach, you don't have to have things that only the uh, children with DLD do. You're asking, okay, in this classroom where everyone is speaking a particular community dialect sufficient with their linguistic system. Um, and so that's really why we use a dialect, uh, a disordered versus, uh, a disorder within dialect approach. Um, okay, now, now can you ask that question about Yes, and I think that's really helpful, Jana, because the listeners are a broad audience and many are SLPs, but some are educators and administrators and parents. And so I do think it's important to think about it. And I've had people who listen to the podcast ask me where I'm from based on my dialect. And they'll say, I just can't put my finger on it, but I'm uh, from a Midwestern, I guess, I, you know, dialect, um, more middle Missouri dialect. So I have a bit of a Southern Midwestern and I remember as an undergraduate speech pathology major wondering what was the typical quote unquote, what is that? And I remember hearing, oh, I think that's Ohio. People would say different things. Oh, that's Ohio. Yeah. There's certain areas, there was like a tiny pocket. And I was like, if there's a tiny pocket, we're all supposed to aspire to that. Or you hear like broadcast dialect, mm -hmm. right? Is a big one you talk about. And of course there's been amazing documentaries on dialect and and we can even put some of those in the resources. There's some great resources. Oh, and, well, right? and there's, a, there's a new one on dialect in sign language. Oh, wow. Uh, that Wolfram is just done. Yeah, it's fabulous. Well, that's um, great. So we can definitely turn our listeners on to more information. And you can fall down a rabbit hole with dialect. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think, I think Walt Wolfram lists 28 different dialects in his book. Um, Delaney has a real simple map that you can get that has 24. And then linguists have come up with uh, many more maps with many more dialects. Um, and so, yeah, the United States and, you know, globally, we have lots of dialects. And SLPs can and are uh, identifying DLD and treating DLD within the context of these. We just have to get better at knowing what are we doing um, and articulating. And that. so what are the dialects that you've mainly studied? I believe it's African American English and Southern White English, is that correct? Yeah, so in Louisiana, which I moved to um, 30 years ago, um, it's one of the nine states that's considered the Deep South. The Deep South has, um, some people refer to it as 15 states, but Either way, Louisiana's in it. Uh, we have some of the highest levels of poverty, the lowest levels of education and measures of um, wellness. Our public schools in Baton Rouge are over 50% African-American and 27% of our children live in rural areas. So it was really natural for me to, to when I moved to Louisiana and I wanted to study DLD, to move and make my research a rural area where I could hear both rural 
African American English and Southern White English being spoken in the same schools and in the same communities. Um, that that was a easier for me to do than to let's say work in Baton Rouge where I might have urban African American English, but I don't necessarily have the counterpart of an urban uh, non mainstream Southern white English. So we've spent a lot of time in rural Louisiana, 60 to 90 minutes away, but I've been super fortunate uh, in that I've just had amazing PhD students who have come to Louisiana to study. And so Brandy Newkirk-Turner, she um, had been a student of Ida Stockman's and Dr. Stockman had a rich, rich data set from Michigan. So uh, Brandy's dissertation was done on children who spoke AAE in Michigan. Um, Jessica uh, Richardson Berry came from South Carolina and she's a Gullah Geechee speaker and so she came and she was able to learn what we were doing in rural Louisiana and then her dissertation was on rural children who are African-American who have a heritage of Gullah Geechee and then finally Andy Revere who's a native speaker of Cajun French grew up in Louisiana and he was able to take um, stuff that, you know, skills he learned in the lab and apply it to children who had, um, who were Southern white English rural dialect speakers, but had a Cajun, um, a Cajun history or ancestry. So it's been super exciting. I'm so lucky, uh, but just amazing students have, have, have come. And it sounds like you had the benefit of having those that have a lot of insight into the language and have that uh, approach of really studying it in the linguistic form. Thinking oh, very deep. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everyone who works, everyone who works in the lab has a better language system than I do. I'm monolingual, monodialectal. You know, I'm the weak link. Um, and so I just, it's been amazing to be able. Um, right now, my two PhD students are bilingual. Um, one is a bilingual SLP in our public schools, and another one is multilingual in both languages and dialects. So it's it's just really exciting. Amazing. And how do you think about in your lab and in your approach to studying these dialects? How do you characterize them in relation to general American English? Well, one of the things I try not to do is think about general American English. I really love Lisa Green's work where she talks about African-American English as a system. And um, every sociolinguist or linguist that I know would refer to any dialect as a linguistic system. So I try to, when I'm studying dialects, study the dialect as a system for what it is. Um, and I can't say it, speak highly enough of Lisa Green's work for really helping us understand African-American English. But we use three methods. When we go into a school, you know, children don't have a lanyard that says, I speak African-American English or I speak Southern White English. And um, they're, they're in contact with each other. So it's perfect. It could easily be the case that somebody whose parents self-report is white speaks African-American English and vice versa. In fact, uh, we had a student in our French department come back to LSU to study Cajun French and what she learned through her dissertation is that she, her family really spoke Creole French. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, the boundaries between some dialects can be uh, more fuzzy than others, but we use three methods. And um, multiple people have showed that these methods correlate with each other. Ramonda Horton Icard is someone who's done that. We've done that in our lab. But the three methods are listener judgment, and that's a blind listener judgment where uh, three people independently listen to one minute 
of um, conversational speech and they fill out a rating form um, to say what are they perceiving this child. The second one is we'll use the DELVE screening test. The first subtest of that um, quantifies how many responses are non-mainstream. And so you can take that number and divide it by the number of total utterances to get a percentage of non-mainstream use. It doesn't tell you what dialect the child's speaking, but it tells you um, how far that child is from what might be considered general American English. Um, and then the third method would be a language sample analysis, which, you know, we like to have at least 200 complete intelligible child utterances. We like to spend three or four hours transcribing them. We have three people that transcribe a sample. We have the second team do reliability. That's my favorite way because you really can see the patterns and the, the just the very large inventory and creative use of language, but that takes time. And so those first two methods are very quick and easy to do listener judgment still, I'll probably never do a study without that. I love the Delve, but you can, if you're five, you can produce up to um, six or seven utterances as non-mainstream and be considered um, a mainstream speaker. Um, you can also be a general American English speaker with DLD. Right. And because you zero mark third person or verbal S because of your DLD grammatical weaknesses, you can you can administer the, the delve to them and they will come out as some variation, mm. even though your ears mm. are telling you that this is, this is general American English. So I really like all three methods. I think it tells us something. People sometimes ask me, why are there always kids in your study that uh, don't have a lot of non-mainstream forms? And my response is always, well, that's how communities work. Dialects are not monolithic. We all have our own idolect um, and there's individual differences. And Julie Washington and Holly Craig showed us that in 1994, wow. a long time ago, that they went into some head starts and showed that they had low, medium and high users of those non-mainstream forms. Um, back when I started, I thought I would throw out the kids who had very low uses. Thank goodness I didn't, uh, because I've now come to realize that um, that individual differences is part of communities. Um, and then with the three methods, usually if somebody is shows, let's say they have a uh, what I would consider a non-prototypical use of AAE in that one minute. So three people hear it and say, that sounds like Southern white English. Uh, then we'll give them the delve or we'll look at the language sample and there's plenty of evidence in those two pieces that the speaker is an African-American English speaker. We just didn't happen to capture it in that one minute. Um, and so, yeah, there's prototypical and non-prototypical uh, speakers when you pull out one minute clips. So uh, that's my answer in that, you know, those three methods give you a rich understanding. And in 20 years, it might not be like that. In 20 years, these dialects, may be closer related or they might be farther apart um, and that's something else that we can document across across time is that affected by uh, whether people are transient or maybe socioeconomic um, opportunities like what you know what um, i think i think all those factors do affect dialects, but dialects are always, of language is always evolving. Yes. Right. Um, and so the rural areas that I work in pre-Katrina and post-Katrina had very little movement. I think mm -hmm. we were like 3% or 4%. So we don't have a lot of movement in our 
in our, our those particular schools, but we're humans and we're creative. So we're going to change our language um, just because of who we are. Um, so we definitely have had, you know, going to the same schools for 30 years, we've seen it's not the case that something new has popped up. It's more the case that some things are a little bit more frequent than they were before. But it also highlights how you can't get stagnant in terms of just saying, well, I'm going to use this method or I'm going to use this criterion or whatnot. It's that you got to kind of stay up on the research and what's out there, what's happening. Because you've used different approaches to think about DLD within that dialect, mm -hmm. like different cut points. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what you found to be, um, you know, the most sensitive? To, the, uh, to find, mm -hmm. identifying DLD? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm always going to say the more data you have, the better. Yeah. Uh, and we're very new, you know, uh, we haven't been studying DLD in African American English or Southern White English near as long as we've been studying it in general American English. But um, some of those same markers that are cutting across languages, mm -hmm. we're finding um, are appropriate for identifying DLD. Our, our best probe so far has been our sentence recall mm -hmm. task. Um, and it, that task was very strategic in that it went from simple sentences to more complex sentences, manipulating tense, tense and agreement uh, forms. And uh, it has shown our best sensitivity and specificity or diagnostic accuracy. The other thing we really liked about it is our DL, children with DLD, when they would not recall something, it, they wouldn't recall part of their tense and agreement system. Mm -hmm. The typically developing children who were AAE or SWE speakers, they could use their grammar as a foundation to help them recall. Mm -hmm. And that seems very consistent, right, with mm -hmm. learning how to read or learning how to write. If you have a good grammar system, you can rely on that system mm -hmm. to help you get through the sentence, whether mm -hmm. you're reading or you're writing. So I love that probe. Um, I also pretty pleased with our grammar productivity probes, especially our past tense probe. So past tense is a form, regular past tense and irregular past tense that all, all dialects have. We vary in how we produce past, but talking about the past. And children with DLD struggle with sharing stories and telling individuals about what has happened. And so it also has been our, uh, of our grammar probes, the one with the highest sensitivity and the specificity. And I think, you know, clinically being able to talk about a past event is really important. Now remember it's in AAE and SWE, so we're not saying you have to be able to talk about the past using general American English. It's, it's, can you talk about the past in your dialect? Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we see the typically developing kids just doing a much better job, having more forms, having more productivity um, than our children with DLD. Mm -hmm. So in your, in your approach, uh, just to be clear to the listeners, the dialect has its own rules, its own kind of variation. And general American English is not used as a touchstone necessarily. It's its own dialect as well. Is that correct? Right. Put it? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, Megan Brett Hamilton, uh, she's at Auburn. She just wrote a wonderful article in the ASHA Leader uh, in the beginning of this year on using, avoiding deficit language when talking about African-American English. And that's something that 
um, I was so happy she wrote it. You know how sometimes people write things and it's like, oh, you wrote exactly what I've been trying to articulate and yeah. I couldn't come up with the words. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we have made some changes in the lab over the last 30 years, but her article really helped us become aware of why we make it. So 30 years ago when we were doing a language sample, we would put in a little code that was like an error code. Mm -hmm. And then we would go through all the errors and categorize them as, oh no, that sounds like um, it's appropriate for African-American English or Southern white English, or oh, oh that's, an, that's a behavior that I've never seen in any literature. So it's clearly the child made a linguistic error. Well, at least 10 years ago, um, I'm trying to think, I think it was when Sonia Pruitt was a PhD student. Um, we changed that and said, why are we calling it an error? We don't know what it is. So we changed that and now it's a flag. Mm. There's never, in fact, we, we hardly ever use the word error for anything. We talk about something being dialect appropriate or being dialect inappropriate or being task appropriate. You know, this test wanted this response and the child didn't give the, the response, the targeted response. There's really no place for the word error. Um, so you know, we don't need that. Um, it's just so important, Dana. And as we know, studying language, words matter. And saying the word error, even if you you know, categorize it differently later, um, it, it means something. It has a negative connotation. So it's really, I think, so important, as you said, to avoid that the, the deficit discussion in relation to dialects compared to quote, yeah. quote unquote general American English, right? It's like, shouldn't be compared right. to, it's its own dialect, it has its own rules. And if you have a flag that, I, I just love that approach. I think it makes a lot of oh, sense. Another word that we really try to avoid is omission. Mm. Because uh, we prefer the more linguistic neutral or the linguistic universal term of zero form. Mm. All languages have zero forms. General American English has zero forms. Uh, think of the plural of sheep. Mm -hmm. Sheep, the past tense of cut. Mm -hmm. It's cut. We, um, all languages have zero marked forms and it's a linguistic term that doesn't carry any negative connotation. And the definition of a zero form is it just doesn't have phonetic content. Mm -hmm. It does not mean that it's an omission. Mm -hmm. uh, there are plenty of cases that we know something's there because when we invert it, perhaps a, a declarative into a question, there's something there that forces the question to be constructed the way it is, um, or sometimes when we make elliptical uh, responses. So a zero marked form is a much more neutral term. Um, we don't have to use the word omission because it's not the case that these dialects are omitting anything. Um, African-American English and Southern white English allows and zero forms um, oh, they're not defined by um, they're not defined by their zero forms so these dialects also have overt forms they have overt forms that they share with other dialects but they also have dialect specific overt forms like ain't like the habitual be so i be working those are specific to those dialects and they're they're overt forms. Um, there are also camouflaged forms. Uh, and I love camouflage. She did teach me about them in her writings, but these are forms that uh, look like general, like for me, being a general American English speaker, I might see the form in a transcript and say, oh, that's a general American English form, but the child's using it wrong. 
Mm. Well, that's completely naive. Mm. It's a child, if the speaker is an AAE speaking child, that child is using the form in a way that is appropriate for AAE. Mm. It's camouflaged mm. because I think with my general American English lens that it, you know, oh, that, that had plus verb, that's a past perfect. Mm. Why is a child using a past perfect in a simple past sentence? And it's like, well, if you study AAE mm -hmm. and you look at John Rickford's work, you learn that had plus verb form is actually a preterite mm. form. It has an, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's felicitous or grammatical in, to, to be a simple past tense marker. So something that, you know, initially you might think is dialect is an error is actually a dialect appropriate form that in kindergarten, if an AAE speaking child uses it, it correlates with that child actually is better at narratives. Mm. They get higher scores on narrative when we, we assess their narratives. They're actually stronger um, users of story structure uh, because it tends to be a, a structure that gets used, not always, but gets used in personal storytelling. That's really interesting. Isn't that cool? It is so cool. And it just really does, it, it really is important to have this kind of, not shift, but just a clear understanding that a child, I like how you started in the beginning, a child with developmental language disorder we know has a system that's inefficient for learning language. If you're a child uh, born into a, you know, you're going to be born into a language, speaking a language in a home and in, in a context, a culture, and that language has its own patterns. And if you are, you know, picking up on those patterns, as you would expect, then you would be a child who would count as typically developing because they're picking up on those specific patterns of that dialect as they should. But the indicator of DLD is that they're not picking up on those dialects. But what I hear you saying is that that can be tricky because not picking up on those dialectical forms may look more like general American English when actually it's a sign that they're not maybe acquiring their dialectical forms as much. When you talk about the camouflage, it sounds like if they are using this kind of, um, you know, higher level or, you know, more advanced kind of aspect of their dialect, that could be indicative of, being good at storytelling, which is indicative of more general language. Am I reiterating that right for the listeners? I think so. I think so. The key <laughs> is, is, you know, if you think of these, di you know, anytime you use the word dialect, you can use the word language. Yeah. And in fact, there's a large group of scholars who study mm -hmm. African-American English and, and they prefer the term language. So, you know, one of the tests I do when I write is every time I write the word dialect, I put in the word language. And if the sentence still makes sense, then I have treated the word dialect appropriate. Another thing I like to do is take out the word, uh, whatever dialect I'm studying, and I throw in general American English. Mm -hmm. And I mix up the labels and I say, okay, now when I read the sentence, is it, mean, you know, is it meaningful or does it, am I treating that minority dialect as a less than mm -hmm. dialect? Right. Um, and so you can kind of fix your writing. But, your point being that, yeah, if, if you're a weak learner, you're a weak learner of the dialect of your community. So when you said that there's the map that show like the 24 different dialects in the U.S., you could think of those as 24 different languages and they have their own rules. Well, I'm not a linguist. I know. So every child in those 24 communities or those 28 or linguists would use a map with a much bigger. Every single child is using a language, mm -hmm. a full system 
um, that is appropriate for that area. And the children with DLD are the children who are not learning that as well as their same dialect peers. Now, I think that's, uh, I know I'm being kind of broad here, um, and I apologize to any linguist listeners that I have, and you can, you know, just comment and correct me. I'm really making broad generalizations, but I'm, I'm doing that uh, in the service of having a paradigm shift, and that's what I hear you saying is that, you know, we think about bilingual speakers, for instance, they're speaking two different languages, and they've been deemed, you know, languages based on maybe even more social, political, cultural aspects, and maybe we don't attend to the fact that we have these different dialects in the United States, and those dialects are functioning as languages. They have their own complex rules, and so we have to think about development within those contexts, so it's not just thinking about the different languages a child speaks, but actually thinking about their individual dialect and how we characterize right. DLD within that dialect. And I think that might be a novel concept for some of the listeners to think in that way. Um, I know it's definitely a shift for me even to think in that way. Um, you know, so I, I just want to kind of hit that point home because it's so important what you're, with your framework of disorder within difference. Um, uh, I'm sorry, it's not, I'm, I think I'm saying that wrong. Right. Disorder within dialect or disorder within difference, yeah. either one. You have to put the word disorder first, yeah. and it's very, you know, we've spent mm -hmm. how many years saying it the other way, and I still mess it up. Thank um, you. I have some notes. But, you know, you just have to keep remembering that we're experts in disorders. Yes. And we have a, our prevalence of our children in a classroom should be small. Yes. And our job is to find those kids. Um, and so keeping it to be disorder within dialect or within disorder keeps us focused on our charge. Um, and if you have the clinicians that are listening, in particular the SLPs, how do they implement your framework in practice? What are some practical tips you would give them for just now listening to this podcast saying, okay, I got to think differently about this in my clinical practice? Uh, well, one thing I'd recommend is journal writing. Um, and so writing down your experiences in your day-to-day -day work. And so what you might find is you start with some things that you always know. Oh, this child always uses ain't. Well, the minute you write that, then your charge could be, I got to figure out all the ways this child uses ain't. Does he use it for doesn't? Does he use it for isn't? Does he use it for hasn't? Um, or does he have a really narrow range where he's only using it um, in one particular case. Um, so that ain't as simple. It's not comp that, that complicated, but that's, I pick it just because it's an easy example. But you can do that with your zero forms of B, is our am, was, or were. Uh, children who speak AAE or SWE don't zero mark those at all the same frequencies. You tend to have high rates of overt marking for am, was, and were slightly lower rates for is and your lowest rates of overt marking for are. So you get this very systematic pattern. That's in AAE. In Southern White English, you get everything at high rates except for R. Mm. R is much lower. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's dialectical, but much more uh, constrained than African American English. Gullah Geechee, you get zero marked forms on all of them. Wow. So you get zero marked forms of am and you get some zero marked forms of was and were. Um, and so as a clinician asking yourself, okay, I work in a community where I'm hearing dialects other than general American English. 
I'm an expert in general American English, but if I want to help this child, I need to be an expert or at least a learner of the dialect the child is speaks. Um, now, I always say the best person to teach code switching is somebody who code switches, who knows how to do it and um, shares when they started doing it, when they started noticing they had to do it and what were, you know, how do they do it. I oftentimes uh, find that what we're really talking about is code editing. So people are very conscious of what they're doing when they're writing. I code edit. You know, I have certain uh, things that I always have to check my writing for. Um, because I don't always speak the same way I write. Um, and so code editing is something that's different than, than code switching, mm -hmm. perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned bilingual, you mentioned bilingual children. Mm -hmm. And one of the things with bilingual children is, you know, we, we have code blending. Mm -hmm. um, and Roshante Young is someone who's really helped us understand the word code blending or code meshing and it's perfect speech pathology what does a speech pathologist do with a late talker we teach baby signs right and we try to help the family to say we don't care how your child communicates the child if the child wants to use a sign if the child wants to use an eye gaze a grunt a vocalization or a word all of this is communication and we want to get your you know help your child start communicating well code meshing or code blending tells a child we want you to bring all your ways of language to a task yes right so any any part of you um your the language that you're most comfortable with that is part of who you are your things that you're learning at school you have a large repertoire or a large inventory of language and you're going to use them all in these different tasks um, and so i think the bilingual literature has really helped us in that area um, but i i really like code meshing um, another book i will plug since i'm on is Anne. Charity Hudley's book, We Do Language, it's for uh, secondary students. Oh, great. She has a co-author, co but it's a fabulous book. You read it and you wish your children could, could have a teacher that was trained by them. Mm. Um, it's just, it, it makes, it, 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 all the beauty and complexity of language comes out in that book. Oh, that's fantastic. And I feel like there's a paucity of work uh, oftentimes in those later grades too. Secondary. Yeah. yeah. So that's really great to have that resource. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too in thinking about working with a child who is struggling to learn language within their dialect to be thinking about how to improve language but in a functional way that they can then communicate mm -hmm. within their dialect and they can communicate um, in ac academic language, whatever that may be. So learning the individual vocabulary words for a science or social studies or what's needed um, for right. the what. Well, in a code mesh, you know, a, a repertoire approach would say, you know, all you're doing is you're taking what the child came to school with mm -hmm. and you're making it larger. Yeah. So, you know, in the larger you can make his repertoire of language to include literate language, he mm -hmm. doesn't have to lose his ability um, to, to use language from the home or the community. You want all of those ways. I mean, think about your favorite books, uh, they oftentimes will have community or gender or things from the community woven into the writing. And, uh, you know, Toni Morrison, my, a, lot, a number of fabulous writers weave um, 
their repertoire of lang you know, their language forms together. And that's really should be the goal yeah. uh, for our kids. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also, I want to go back to the fact that you said it's a universal phenomenon. We have listeners from all over the world, and this is not something that's just unique to the United States. There's dialects all over the world, and this approach of thinking about uh, developmental language disorder applies within all dialects. And I think that's an important message, too, to keep in mind um, for the listeners. It's not, you know, something that's just happening in the U.S. Now, you have this probe that you're using and the research you've done. Is that available to clinicians? So we're in the process of making it available. Our past tense probe is 24 four-second animate, four, four animations, mm -hmm. and they're in a... They're in a PowerPoint and we are happy to give those out. We created them so that the verbs uh, don't end in consonants because mm -hmm. uh, African-American English, you can get some final consonant cluster reduction. Um, and so they all end in vowels or glides. Um, we're really happy with that probe and uh, it will be made available on our website soon. But when people email us, we're happy to send those through a Dropbox. Mm -hmm box link um, and we're you know in the process of getting our sentence recall task put out uh, mm -hmm. as well part of those is helping people know how to score yes um, if you score it through a general American English lens there's really no reason to have the animations if you can adopt a dialect appropriate scoring system then um, then you know I think you'll be able to separate out typical and impaired kids. Thank you for making that. At least that. So it's one piece. That's fantastic. Thank oh, you for no. making that available. I think it's so important, and that's that's a really rich resource that clinicians get their hands on. And I'll make sure and put the link in our resources on the website. And then in the meantime, if they want to email you, they can do that as well. It sounds like or the lab uh, to yep. get those resources. Yep. Okay, I'm going to be mindful of our time, and I, I love all the things that we've talked about. Is there anything you want to hit that we haven't hit before I turn to my two final questions that I ask everyone? No, I'm, I'm uh, greatly enjoying. I'm so happy you do this. Oh, well, I'm so happy you came on. <laughs> this is so great. Um, so the first question I ask is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? So I'm most excited about taking the sentence recall probe and the grammaticality tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a non-word repetition and a size judgment task in there as well. But the, the language probes have really worked better mm -hmm. than the working memory. Developed those and uh, tested them in a rural area. So I'm really excited about uh, getting trying to get funding to take those probes and uh, do a more stratified uh, sample. Uh, my guess is we're going to have different cut scores depending on the child's dialect um, because these dialects are not the same. And so to be dialect appropriate, you would create, you would um, implement the task appropriate for that dialect. Uh, but we're not going to be able to show people those cut scores unless we do a much larger sample. But I'm confident they can be used. I just think we're going to have to, you know, do some adjusting. Um, and, and then I think we'll be able to put some other things in there like positive family history. You know, we were, we shouldn't have been surprised, but um, we asked our families, um, our African-American families about family history. And sure enough, we replicated the same findings in studies of family history and DLD and that you get twice as many 
uh, positive family history reports in our families with DLD than you do in typically developing control children. Um, it, who, whose families are African-American. And so we really, as clinicians, need to start using that information more in our reports. Yeah, that's been... For our diagnostic decisions. That's been tricky, too, in the dyslexia field. You know, I think only tricky because of um, maybe comfort level for asking those kinds of questions and maybe even just, uh, you know, framework, right? Like, what is the approach and how do you get that information in a way that's systematic? But I agree with you. It does seem like it's very helpful information. And especially um, thinking about, you know, the genetic piece, but, uh, you know, how do we word it? And it sounds like you have such a good approach, and so many people do, of how to word the question to really get at, do you have a family history? You know, what is what did this look like? Because it can be a little confusing, too. Like, you know, if you say, did you have dyslexia? Well, they're not going to say yes, probably, because it wasn't yeah. even diagnosed then, you know, or say, did you have language impairment? Well, no, you know. But the way you ask the questions and to think about it is so helpful. I, I hope that gets implemented more, and I'm glad you mentioned that here, too, within this discussion. You know what I was going to ask you, I, I almost forgot, is how has your research changed from the onset of COVID-19, like school closures and such? Has your research changed quite a bit from, from that? Or? Um, I would say, you know, on one hand, no. We were very lucky that we were in a writing phase. Okay. And so uh, we just hunkered down and have been trying to write. Both of my PhD students, though, because of COVID, are doing, um, they're not collecting data with humans. Uh, one is doing, uh, working with the public school and doing a chart review and focusing on screening mm -hmm. for monolingual and bilingual children. Um, and then the other one is looking at some grammaticality judgment data in um, speakers of AAE uh, who are typical and present with DLD. So um, COVID is, co you know, COVID's here. Um, we are, come fall, we'll start uh, trying to run our probes remotely. They should work mm -hmm. just fine, uh, but we definitely want to um, document the feasibility of that. Um, well, that's, I mean, very, you know, it's very, in some ways, the silver lining to be able to look back at some of the data that's been sitting there. And for me, I'm speaking my own personal, but you know, we have some data that's sitting there that needs attention, and now we can give it some attention. So that's really nice. I know not everyone's in that position, but if you are, it is nice to be able to think more about disseminating those results we've always wanted to disseminate or, you know, getting out these clinical tools, which is, sounds like you're doing too, which is so helpful, very helpful. And now I'm yeah. going to ask the hardest question. Everyone says this is the hardest question. Favorite book from your childhood or now? <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that's a hard question. Uh, although I've enjoyed listening to uh, your other podcasts, people mention books, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we read The Bernstein Bears. Oh, yeah, we read. Uh, my favorite book was The Red Balloon. I have it right here, my, ori my original copy. Um, I I know. I was living in Canada at the time, or at least this was my memory. Uh, and it's um, it's actually there's been a movie made out of. I've never watched the 38 minute movie, but it was by um, Albert Lamorse. He was a French writer, and it's set in Paris. And it's about a little boy who doesn't have a brother or sister, and he befriends a balloon, and he protects the balloon. And then finally, some mean boys burst the balloon. And it ends with all the balloons of the city um, mm. coming to his rescue mm. and um, wow. taking him on a wonderful 
And I asked my parents, I was recently home in Illinois, and I kind of wanted, I said, I'm going to be on this podcast and check my memory. I think that you used to read this book to me when we lived in Canada. And my mom and dad have the biggest smile on their face. And they said, my dad said, we would read you a couple pages of that and you would bounce on our bed to try to catch the balloon. And then you would go to sleep. And my bed was a sleeping bag next to their bed. Right. They were, you know, married. They didn't have any money. And, um, but they, it was just wonderful because then it started a whole conversation of their time of when they lived in Canada. So isn't that the beauty of books? Yes. It when really help you share memories, mm-hmm. um, that is, that's, and, uh, that's the best feeling of it. You can make that connection around books. It's such a positive experience. Yeah. Now, I did, I have to disclose, I read this book to both of my children when they were young, and it did nothing for them. I tell you that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Something, it, it, that's, I guess, the point. Like, variety is the spice of life. There's so many books, you got to find the right one. But it is true. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm surprised sometimes with books my kids like versus don't, you know. I can't really predict it. And, but it's still, regardless, it's such a great memory to have. And I'm glad you shared that. I've never heard of that book. So I'd love to get the books my guests talk about. I know I'm embarrassed to say sometimes the books I don't know about, but I will get them and, and try them out. It's, I'm always looking for new children's books. Oh, well, part of me thinks Pascal, that's the main character, but he had very short blonde hair. And my mom always kept my hair above my ears. Hmm. Um, you know, and so I think I, I think I thought, I look like him, mm-hmm. which is another great thing about books. If you can give children books that look like them, yes, they it's easier for them to have an affinity and a connection with the book. Um, Such a crew. So yeah, I've I don't I've, this book has just followed me along. Oh, that's so cool! I love that you have that book too. You have the original. That's amazing. I mean, like yeah, that's yeah, that's very cool. Well, Jana, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.